Hi, my name is Martin Lenz, and welcome to the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. Hi, and welcome to the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. My name is Cowboy Keith, I'm your host, and today we're talking to Martin Lenz, well-noted drummer and producer about Nashville, Tennessee. Marty, if I can call you that, it's nice to have you on the show. Nice to be here, Cowboy. Uh, so uh, let's get right at it. These interviews are short and sweet, so let's start right it's to the beginning. Sweet, I like it. Where were you born? Valdosta, Georgia. Valdosta, Georgia. Now, were you raised in Valdosta, Georgia? I was not. Um, lived there for probably about a year, then moved down to North Florida, uh, eventually ending up in a little citrus town north of Orlando called Apopka, Florida. Apopka. Seminole Indian for big potato. Really? Interesting. <laughs> now, did you go through grade school there and through high school? Grade school and, yes, high school, all the way through. So when you graduated high school, did you to go to college after high I school? I went to the University of Florida right in now. Gainesville. And, well, home of uh, Tom Petty, correct? True. Did and I Ben Montench. The Tench Building is downtown Gainesville. Okay, so you graduated high school. Did you play music in high school? Yeah, I started playing music in organized bands, uh, you know, school bands from the age of 10 and went all the way through the high school system. Now, were drums your first instrument? Yeah, first and only. First and only. Interesting. All the way through. Yeah, I never really wanted to do anything else. Cool. Instrument-wise. Now, uh, you, so, born in Valdosta, Georgia. Made it down to Apopka, the big potato of Indian culture. And that's just north of Orlando, is that correct? Yes. Uh, I came from, a, I was the first person in my family to go to college, and so it was kind of expected maybe that I have a normal life, you know? And so I, I played Boy, around a little bit. Yeah. And then I, you know, eventually in the late 80s moved up to Washington, D.C., and I actually was a lot more active in the D.C. music scene than I was ever in Orlando. Was music education at all part of your not curriculum? Even, not even remotely. Not even remotely. <laughs> the music education I got was through uh, junior high and high school, mostly. You know, I took lessons and was in organized bands, like I said. And then by the time, you know, I was very into jazz. Played a lot of jazz. Were you in, were you in the charts. high school jazz band? Yeah. yeah. Charts and all okay. Were you also in the marching band as well? Yeah. So that seems to be a common thread that everyone starts in the marching band to be part of the jazz band and et cetera. Yeah, well, you have to. You got to be in it to win it, as they say. Precisely. Okay, so what did your parents do? What was your mother's occupation or time consumer? What was her What was her bag down there in Florida? My mom's thing was uh, uh, being involved in whatever we were involved in. Um, she volunteered at the schools and she worked part-time jobs here and there but primarily a homemaker yeah yes and no I mean she was always active like I said she was always volunteering and doing stuff that we were involved in and then eventually she ended up getting a job uh, at working for Publix Publix no no now was your mother musical at all she played piano or flute or kazoo no. anything no she had the best 45s so you had a great record collection uh-huh. She had good 45s. I remember spending those when I was six years old. My dad was more musical. He was, uh, he's a, an, a natural Irish tenor and uh, sang in barbershop quartets oh, wow. at Georgia Christian School up in Valdosta. And, uh, Did so he continue singing with quartets when he got down to Florida? No, it was just it was a high school thing for him. But, uh, you know, he, he just loves music, and he's partially 
where I got my, you know, really learned my real love for music. So mom's 45s and dad's love of music were both a big influence on you. Yeah, and my aunt, and my aunt Snooney, Snoop. Carlin Calhoun, Hi. who uh, is not my real aunt, but my mom's best friend. Sure, I had an aunt Doris, my mom's best friend, who I think I was probably closer to than my actual aunts. <laughs> now, Snooney, what was her taste in music? How does that help Pure country. You? Pure country. She would let me sit in her Cadillac and, and play uh, play eight tracks and cassettes, and that's that's what you heard in her in her car. And I learned to really love that, uh, you know, along with you know, you know, growing up in the '70s, you listened to everything. And what was your dad's profession? My dad's a salesman. A salesman. Can okay. sell ice to an Eskimo. Did was he a traveling salesman? Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Wherever the sales took him. Yep. All right. Jack of all trades. Oh, wasn't your father a bit of a pool player as well? He was. Made made quite a living when I was young. Um, very good at it. But uh, in the in a Paul Newman Jackie Gleason esque way. <laughs> yeah, it was more of a Minnesota fat, really. Okay. He made you laugh while he was taking your money. That sounds great. <laughs> so, let's uh, let's go let's go down the uh, timeline. Valdosta, Georgia, Apopka, Florida, baked potato, Florida. You're in Orlando. You moved to D.C. What took you to D.C. after college in Gainesville? Well, uh, my thin wife was going for her graduate degree. I was working. My thin, like I said, my thin wife was uh, going to get her degree at George Washington, and it seemed I've been up there a couple times and met some people. It seemed like a cool place to. I'd never really been north, you know. I'd only been outside of Florida and Georgia like twice in my life, so it seemed like a good way to jump into something completely new and just see what where that took me, you know. Okay, so now you're in D.C. How did you start playing with local musicians? I, I guess the way you always do, you start hanging out and, uh, you know, you meet somebody and you say, I play drums, and, and then all of a sudden you meet like-minded people and you just start playing and... You know, I kind of got into the edge of the outer, the very end of like what I would call the 80s DC punk scene. Ian McKay, Discord, Single yeah, Machines. Yeah, I mean, really, that, I'm on the very, very outer edge of all that stuff. I mean, we were just playing in, in all the, with all the punk bands that were up there, like Black Market Baby. In, in the Black Cat or 930? Black Cat. Bayou, is Bayou part of your rep? Bayou. Clubs that you were playing? Yeah. And then I became involved with this club called IOTA in Arlington, and which is a uh, a prominent uh, step up roots music club in the right. DC area. Yeah, and we, we, I was there from the very beginning. It never really as a formal employee, but I was often the doorman there, and it was just it was kind of the you know the musician playground of Northern Virginia. So, uh, you know, we help, We would help build the stage, you know, and, and if you had a night off, you would do the door. It was one of those places. Much like the family wash here in East Exactly. Nashville. Very much so. Uh, eclectic types of music, usually carefully chosen for their quality over their different contents. Right, yeah. If you went there, you, you knew you were going to see something good. You might not like it, but it wasn't for lack of... Quality. quality. Sure. Now, how about the Birchmere? Did you step into that role later? Was that Birchmere was later for me. I mean, I would go. Four hundred seats. Yeah. You know, listening room is, is you know usually listening rooms are hundred. So now we're in D.C. We've played there, and I believe you joined a band called Last Train Home. Yep. 
that goes back to the IOTA days. I was playing in this punk band called El Quattro, and we were kind of like a throwback, uh, almost New York Dolls kind of vibe uh, band. But, you know, I never left my jazz roots behind. I never left my country roots behind. And uh, as a doorman, you've met musicians all the time. And uh, I was playing uh, with this band called The Grave Robbers, another great garage rock band, uh, Carl Straub's outfit, which is just amazing. It's like Roger Miller mixed with yeah, The Replacements. And uh, so anyway... Uh, I'm doing door, and this guy Eric Brace comes up and asks me if I want to do a couple of shows with him here and there. And it turned out that was Last Train Home, and that's the one that you know I played with, played with lots of people. But that just happened to be the one that that kind of took off. Now, how long did you play in Last Train Home? Like Eleven years. Eleven years in Last Train Home. Yeah, uh, uh, probably from two, uh, 1997 till about 2005. Is that band's move to Nashville what brought you to Nashville? That's why I'm here. Yeah, it's the it's a it's a fairly common story with Nashville. A band moves to Nashville, trying to make it their new home base, see what happens, and then over the course of time, people start finding other projects and they kind of, you know, go their go their different ways. Okay, so now you're in Nashville. You're playing with a, a roots music band who, who I think immediately made a dent in the local scene. Oh yeah, carved out a niche for themselves, and they were welcomed. Mm-hmm. Uh, a lot of great players in that band, Jim Gray. Yeah, I've met a lot of great musicians in that band. You know, to all of them. Top who are who are some other, let's call them now well-known Nashville musicians that came out of besides yourself? That well, I mean, as far as coming out of there, I mean, it's just the people who have passed through the doors. It, it was always kind of a musical collective. But, you know. Was Alex McCullough ever a part of that? Alex McCullough from Yes Master Studios played. Jen Gunnerman played keyboards Jen. sometimes. Tom Mason. Everyone's favorite pirate. Everyone's favorite Nashville pirate. Uh, Jim Gray, of course. Uh, Dave Van Allen, a f- fantastic steel player, lives up in Pennsylvania. Bill Williams, Scott McKnight, Eric's brother, um, uh, Allen, and, uh, you know, just myriad people. You know, and, uh, Kevin Court on trumpet, Chris Watling. We actually, sometimes we had a horn section. That's fantastic. So you got to play with just world-class, amazing players all the time. And it was always different, which I think was a really good education and like as far as how to play and listen, you know. All right, now you're entrenched in the national music scene. Uh, people are starting to notice, and I, I can say this from talking to other musicians in the Nashville area, that, that you are rock solid and have a great feel and listen to the music and understand it so people start to notice this and they start to ask you to record on sessions and play on other projects is that how it's going like paul birch or chuck mead yeah i mean yeah i did stuff with paul paul birch for a good long time and still occasionally do i'm on several of his records and uh currently yeah my main gig right now is chuck mead of course we just finished a record um it was based on his experiences in Kansas and it just kind of wrote itself um, that was really fun and then I do you know in Nashville it's very hard to break into you know the actual record recording but there's tons of demo work and that's mostly where I'm at I'm not that high on the food chain well I think other people have a different <laughs> opinion of you for sure I know that people like Chris Scruggs and Chuck Mead and myself find you definitely in the top pantheon of Nashville. Trauma. That is high praise indeed. Well, you got 
you got great soul, you got great time, and you got great feel. And you have a true education and understanding of all the music you play. And that, that brings a lot to a session. That's, that's an important thing. Well, I, you know, I, the, I try to serve the song, which is the core cardinal rule, I believe, is the most important thing, anything that you can do is to serve the song and uh, make sure your time's good. <laughs> and no, everything else falls into place. Kind of important for a drummer. Yeah, if you don't have those two things, then you, it doesn't matter what you do. So you got to do some great things. You've got to travel around the world. You play with a rock band called Mara as well, out of yeah. Pennsylvania, who tour uh, Spain and Europe, correct? Yeah, mostly Spain. Uh, of course, all over America, but uh, yeah, big in Spain, which is not a bad thing to not be. Not a bad thing to be. Good food, good times, great oldies. Good food. Uh, that band, uh, I love those guys. It's like strapping yourself to a jet engine. An evangelical jet plane. <laughs> just wonderful. It's like the Pogues if they came from South Philly. You know, just... Which is awesome. Just great people, you know. Just big personalities and all the things that come with that. <laughs> so, uh, if you would call something your break, would your break be a steady job with Chuck Mead? Would your break be this train home? Would the break be morale? What, what, your, what was your... You know, this is what I'm doing for a living now. Uh, you know... I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know if I've ever, ever actually broken. You know, I I came to Nashville because I it seemed to be an easier way for me to do this, and uh, because of the pool of people that you're playing with and the fact that you can do it all the time and not live in a place that costs a ton of money to live. So that was that was for me. So it's, you know, I always call East Nashville the home of the cheerfully underemployed. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it's Nashville has a middle class, which is what I found uh, a musician middle class. Absolutely. Which, which I found amazing. The first time I came, I felt like, wow, this is what it's like to be a Jew in like Alabama and then go to Israel. <laughs> you know, oh, wow, there's all these other people and it's not weird. It's not weird what you do. And people raise kids and pay mortgages and go to church or whatever and they just have you know the industry's music so it's not weird which i find really appealing i i always i always say there's three strata of music business there's guys trying to make it there's guys that have made it and then there's guys in the middle who are making a living <laughs> and well, not and not digging holes i'm solidly in the middle when people ask me about nashville i said i came to nashville with no expectations and they were met <laughs> yeah. If you push too hard in this town, it pushes back. You should, you know, relax and let things happen. They will happen the way they're supposed to. That's my feeling. Let's let's talk about your influences. Uh, I know that Gatson is a big influence on you. Who who is your other drumming influences that you tend to to take their taste and feel and, and lend to your music more often than not? Uh, Al Jackson Jr. Absolutely. Um, uh, Levon Helm. And uh, I would say the Holy Trinity are, the, are those two guys added with Art Blakey. Art Blakey? Wow, Art Blakey fan. Yeah, he's an interesting cat because he, uh, he played... He was, first of all, I think he's one of the, the only drummer who really knew how to play with Thelonious Monk. Like, totally got it. Right. A lot of guys danced around it and great players, but I think he's the, he's the guy who totally got how Thelonious Monk played. He has an Afro-Cuban influence in what he does, and he's playing all parts of the drum. He's on the rims. He's doing other stuff like that. Levon's the same way. Like, the drums aren't just the the skins. You know, it, there's, it's an, it, it, they're making music when they play. You can hear it in all three of those guys. 
I think another important thing that Art Blakey did, much like Major Ferguson, is he always brought good guys through his band. Yeah. He always had good players and he was giving a step up. And he had a reputation for building a, a, a great band of new young players all yes. the time. He cultivated, he cultivated talent and, and uh, you know, let, let them blossom. And they, a lot of them moved on. They came through his ranks. He was a, you know, and a, a really good instructor in that way, I think. Well, that's awesome. So now you, uh, you, you were involved in uh, Tommy McDonald's record here. Yes. At Inglehood Records was, uh, and you were involved not only in a role as drummer, but in his co-producer as well. And you were a heavy influence on that production. And people really appreciate the way you steered the helm. I know I did, as well as the other musicians in the band. And your song choices were excellent, excellent choices for Tommy. How did how did you how did you approach? I mean, not knowing Tommy so well, being kind of cold to the project. How did you approach uh, picking the songs? Was it just the best song that you felt well, for what you heard, or was it like these songs need to be done again? I knew we wanted to work slightly outside his comfort zone because uh, I know you know that Tommy is, you know, that's Blues Brothers. There's the canon. I know what that is. And I thought it would be, it would be nice to push it more towards the jump blues thing. And the fact that Tommy is, a, is used to belting it out I thought it would be nice for him to have some more ballad things where he's singing in a lower register, you know. And then you have your pet songs that you always want people to do, you know. Bobby Blue playing, I'm Not Ashamed. I mean, everybody should take a crack at that. It's one of the great songs. And he crushed it. And there's, you have pet people who you just love, you want more attention to give it to. Arthur Alexander, for example, it's just, uh, you know, he's the only guy that the Stones, Dylan, and Beatles covered. Yeah, and, and from what I uh, saw in an interview recently, the Stones were upset because the Beatles got to do it first. <laughs> right, yeah. And then, uh, you know, Ruth Brown, I've always been a champion of. You know, uh, she was one of the biggest acts that, uh, Capital, right? Capital. They called that the house that Ruth built, you know, when, when she was hot, and she's almost forgotten. And that's, that's amazing crying. stuff. And I thought it would be cool to hear a guy like Tommy McDonald tackle some of that stuff because, you know, 5, 10, 15, that's a great song. Mambo. Yeah, and Mambo. Mambo came out as a stellar track. Yeah. What record is on heavy rotation at your house right now? What soul or R&B or jazz record that you just can't get enough of? Well, I've been listening just lately, uh, just the last couple of days, I've been listening to a lot of Horace Silver. Horace Silver? Because he just died yesterday. If I'm not mistaken, he died on June 18th. Wow, that's really sad. And we also lost little Jimmy Scott just two days ago. Horace Silver, also a a major player with Art Blakey. So we're coming back around again. It's the the angular way of playing that it's hard to describe. I I, I don't know if I possess the the musical knowledge to to explain the angular monk style of playing that he has that... But it's slightly less alien, you know, and his work with Blakey, you know, just those those live Jazz Messengers records was a big influence on me, and Horace Silver was a big part of that, so, you know, and he played with everyone. It's just, you know, it's wonderful stuff. Everybody should check it out. Go, go buy a Horace Silver record right now. And Marty, it was great to have you on the program. We've been talking to Martin Linz, noted Nashville drummer and producer, and all-around great guy. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me, Cowboy. Always a pleasure. You've been listening to Martin Linz. Thanks for listening to the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. 
which is available at NashvilleSoulMusic.com and iTunes. That's the Nashville Soul Music Podcast. Until next time, I'm Cowboy Keith Thompson. Please subscribe. <laughs>